Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to today's show. Today we have Angela Sheffield, an AI expert, here to talk to us. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your background. I'm right now the Senior Director for Artificial Intelligence at Raft, which is a really fast-growing digital engineering and consulting firm that does a lot of DoD work. Prior to being at Raft, I started my career in the Air Force as an active duty Air Force officer as what we call in the Air Force and Operations Research Analyst. In the Army, they call it like an ORSA, Operations Research Systems Analyst. And especially at that time, this was before data science, long before artificial intelligence in the way that we know them to be kind of in this current revolution. A lot of what we did in my field was applied math and mathematical modeling. So I have a strong foundational background in applied math, but we were also kind of like MacGyver solving any which way problem, always focused on providing insights to decision makers and like I said, kind of using math to solve a diverse set of problems. While I was in the Air Force, I worked in weapons development, directed energy weapons specifically, also in intelligence of foreign weapon systems, which is kind of what the military does if you come down to it. And then also was part of setting up one of the first really large-scale organization level in the Air Force data-driven insight program to drive their inspections. So that was kind of a, still before data science, certainly still before AI, but as the government and even businesses were starting to think about data-driven decision-making. So stood up a program there. When I left the Air Force, I joined what is called the Net Department of Energy National Laboratory Complex, which is a network of specifically 18 research centers around the country that do a wide variety of research from like basic research in catalysis chemistry to, of course, nuclear weapons development and so supporting the existing nuclear stockpile and also very applied research to support DOD and intelligence community missions. But when I got there, I didn't know any of that. You know, I kind of got a, got a job. I even applied to a statistician job. And, and, but when I got there, I realized that I was part of this huge network of hardcore science capability that, again, was applied to solve problems. I did work at that time as a research scientist. I quickly got into managing programs and leading people, leveraging my military background. We were still focused on counterterrorism at the time, but we're beginning to shift to what we now call strategic competition. But what I'll say to the point of kind of walking through my AI background is that the National Laboratory Complex draws its technical strength from the physical sciences. So physics and chemistry. And I mean, have such a longstanding history in computational science, high-performance computing. So, you know, I come this, this system modeler, applied mathematician into this computational sciences world, which was really interesting in a number of ways. I'll kind of stick to the AI and the technical way, but I bet we'll kind of get into some discussions about like, you know, speaking across multidisciplinary domains and with people with different expertise and like all of that, like, on all levels, you know, mission levels. And also if anyone who's like an, a system modeler has ever talked to a computational scientist, you would think because it's math, it, anyway, we can pull that thread if you want to. But nonetheless, I will contextualize a bit and say this was at the time where we were waking up to data science and AI. 
So because I had come from kind of a multidisciplinary and mission-focused background, I was asked to help the national laboratory I was at, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, begin to think about how to integrate new and powerful capabilities from data science and what would become what we now call AI in the way that it is now into these longstanding and traditional capabilities like chemistry, physics, all that stuff, but for some of the mission areas that we serve. And we can also kind of pull some threads on identifying your areas of specialty. This is when I began to specialize in what the, the national security community calls counterweapons of mass destruction or nuclear nonproliferation and counterproliferation. That was one of those intersectional fields that I began to dive deep in. And, you know, again, this was 2014. This was kind of the beginning of the DOD and the national security and international affairs agencies thinking about what AI could do for them in a normative way, like help us do missions better, but also a transformative way. You know, so add to my system level applied mathematics background, this lots of work in AI and the physical sciences and AI in chemistry, which is a really different way to come to AI than the traditional background, which is really computer science heavy and computer engineering heavy. So to say, in terms of my approach to artificial intelligence, it's different, reflective of a number of different experiences, but focus on the technical background because, you know, I first was in system modeling, you know, kind of walked through the physical sciences and chemistry and some of these national security applications that got me into a really kind of interesting and weird AI space. But again, it being slightly different than the disciplines that we often see in artificial intelligence. Yeah. So I find, you know, especially in the federal government side, anytime somebody says AI, it can be super confusing as to what the heck they mean, just because it, it could be as simple as just data statistics, or it could actually be something that's, that's quite revolutionary and, and could actually be something groundbreaking towards AI. And so when you say AI, and you touched on this a little bit, what, what do you mean? Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you asking. This is something that I wrestle with all the time. And first I'll kind of say it from a technical perspective and then some reflections on it as like an agent for change. So first, certainly like most technically artificial intelligence is this little bundle of technology that, you know, whatever it mimics what can normally be done by humans, you know, all sorts of powerful stuff, but it is a bundle of data, which is the digital represent. I mean, you'd have to like represent something in a way a computer can understand. So that's data. And then compute and algorithms. Often, so it is all three of those things. Right now, you know, it would, it would be remiss not to recognize that AI is so inextricably connected to machine learning. AIML is the phrase we often hear. Machine learning, of course, is an algorithmic approach to achieving this concept of artificial intelligence in a computer. I'm sure many folks listening to your podcast already know, but machine learning is a technique that uses applied statistics to find patterns and data. Another way that I describe it is an, is an interpolation capability. It's like linear regression fitting something to a curve, but it's a super complex, you know, it's not at all linear. It's very complex fitting a model to these data points, but again, interpolating within the data that you've already seen. Deep learning is a subset of machine learning that People pull that differentiation between deep learning and machine learning for lots of, with lots of different definitions, but really what it is, is deep learning is an implementation of machine learning that's intended to mimic the way that the neurons in the brain work. So that's, that's what makes it deep. Artificial intelligence algorithmically is much more than deep learning, machine learning, you know, 
there are other ways to achieve this powerful computational capability like optimization, which, you know, I said I have an OR background. We've been doing optimization since OR was invented, you know, around World War II. There are also, you know, kind of any time that connect a computational capability or decision, that's achieving some sort of AI. And I also want to say we have some almost feel like, you know, concepts of the rules for artificial intelligence right now based on stuff what has to work for machine and deep learning that actually are not true for all artificial intelligence. Like machine and deep learning take tons of data because they're the statistical interpolation technique. There are other techniques that do not have that heavy requirement for data. That's a technical, all of that was just a technical of AI. Then there's also, you know, the idea that we as humans would partner with a computational system to generally make better decisions and make our lives better. That's often what people think AI is. And that's certainly kind of what I often have in my head when I think of AI is what, I mean, we know and appreciate the algorithms and that bundle of the little three things, but, you know, most people are talking about, can we change our lives? Can we make it better by a better partnership between humans and machines? And that's kind of that big AI concept. So those are just, just for those listening to AI in the literature and public discourse, Sometimes, of course, we're talking about that technical AI concept. Sometimes we're talking about machine learning and deep learning. Oftentimes we're talking about that more overarching concept of making what we do better and easier using data and math and compute. And then to the point about the change agent, you know, like I'm sure many people who advocate for technologies and new concepts and innovations have thought a lot about like, do I sit a decision maker down and make sure that they understand the difference between deep learning and machine learning and AI? And like, maybe I do that as one slide in an overview or kind of like this, even in a fun and really accessible way. But the point is that if I, as a technologist, lose the bubble on the turn, you let the turn go. Because the point is that we want to connect with decision makers and connect with people who are running organizations who want to make them better. And if it makes it easier for me to talk to them about math and code and data because they have this concept of AI, then it's just like kind of we, as we always say as technologists, you know, you, your, your user is right. You know, you move to your user. Like, so if, if, if they think AI is this, then cool. That's the beginning of the conversation. I switch to where they are because it's all about reaching a common understanding to develop and implement a technology or other innovation that helps us do what we want to do better. So, so we'll blend some things together or maybe just simplify it. Cause I like how you said, you know, data, math, and compute sort of describe both, you know, data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence on the topic of data, math, and compute, what makes data, math, and compute challenging specifically in, you know, department of energy, DOD, or the federal government in general? Man, Rob, there's kind of a lot back there. So I've done a lot of research and have had the privilege to run and be close to a lot of programs to apply data, math, and compute to try to do national security missions and have a thing that I like to say, which is you go to war with the data you have. Again, because we have this pre-premise, we have this premise that we're biased towards machine learning and think that, you know, you're going to need a lot of data. When approaching AI or any technology or other innovation, non-technical innovation, 
in a space like DOD or DOE, where there's an operational mission, you have to design for the realities of the operational environment and the realities of the constraints of getting that integrated. And in DOD and across the national security enterprise, there is an exceptionally challenging data landscape. And then increasingly we're recognizing the operational conditions. I don't want to go too deep, nor too deep technically, but I'll also say, you know, if you look at AI coming out of the commercial sector, it's developed and, and a lot that is driving academic research. It's developed for non-complex data environments and really easy operational conditions where you're sitting right on top of huge data sets and you've got unlimited compute. And we kind of have forgotten that that is an assumption or a profile of an operational condition in which AI might be applied or, or the data that we have access to is. But it's not always the reality. So just like we would always say, you know, understand your operational conditions, understand the reality of your constraints, that applies to AI data and compute. And in DOD, like data is messy and data are sparse. And also, you know, we're often looking for bad guys and things that haven't happened yet, which means you really cannot use an interpolation technology to find something that's not in your data. So there are some really interesting elements there. There's a lot of talk right now in DOD about enabling operations in contestant environments and at the edge. And there are certainly different compute aspects to how you implement a capability that has to operate on a low, sizely empowered device or in a, you know, it has to be ruggedized. So there are really interesting things happening oh, I mean, across that whole algorithms, data, and compute space in DOD. But it's certainly not one size fits all. You know, there, there are, each of those is something that you have to think about and address for the solution that you're building. But AI, this bundle of, of, of data, map, and compute, it's also always a system of systems between, at a minimum, that little bundle, math, data, compute, and a human, always. Sometimes we say human machine teaming or human computer interaction. I mean, it, it can even be simpler than that, like a developer. You know, that's part of this system. So you're not only figuring out, out the allocation of computational tasks and digital tasks between the data, math, and compute, you're also allocating some of that work to the human. And that's another dynamic that shifts as you move to implement this little bundle of AI plus a human across the different echelons and missions that DOD and like DOE operate in. So that was kind of high level, but that's contextualizing that triad of capabilities for DOD and other national security missions. So I love the quote, you go to war with the data that you have. And, and so my, my question for you there is, is, you know, if, if we were to, you know, go to war with a near-peer adversary, do we have enough data to, to be successful to implement a strategy that actually relies upon more modern AI ML solutions? You know, simply put, is the data we have enough or, or good enough to be successful? The, like, cute answer is that it has to be. It's all we got. That means we have to develop different algorithms, different data strategies, different compute also, since we're talking about those three things, that work recognizing that that's just what the data are going to look like. But there are, I think, some ways to approach 
how we manage data and the sorts of algorithms that we implement that still make, a, make it possible to develop AI systems that work in that environment. But that means, for example, I mean, if you're developing a capability that leverages data that we already have, sometimes that's very sparse data and you can't just use machine learning or deep learning because there's not enough data. So you have to incorporate, you might have to do an interesting technique to change your training data, to bias it in particular ways that enable you, if you're still focused on training, to train an algorithm. Or perhaps you're combining it with a modeling and simulation technique. Lots of people, you know, for people that are following AI, there's a lot of work in synthetic data. I'm not even quite talking just that, but, you know, you're somehow augmenting how you get information into the system to do the training. But I think that even more interestingly is knowing that we're going to have to develop very dynamic systems that can kind of figure out what they have to do when they encounter data that they've never seen before, data formats they've never seen before, features that they've never seen before, that never seen before aspect of it is a reality of what going to war will look like with data. So you described yourself as a technologist. In your opinion, are there enough technologists on the policy side and the senior leadership side of the federal government and the Department of Defense in order to actually drive home an effective strategy? You know, you talked a little bit about you know, including that first presentation slide so you can brief the senior leader to describe basic terms. Is having to do that a roadblock or, or do you actually think it's, there are in fact enough technologists, you know, working within the federal government or the Department of Defense to, to be successful? No, certainly not. I think it's an impediment to, in the policy sense, it's, hundred percent. I mean, there are policies out there that first of all are like not grounded in something that is realizable in, in data and math. I would say obeys the laws of physics, but we're not talking physics here, but the equivalent, you know, doesn't obey the laws of information, which is kind of the foundation for like a data or AI capability. So they're not implementable. And there are also these that we're developing that again, are kind of based on a narrow understanding of something like AI. And so the, the policy really could lead us to miss an opportunity. So for example, we talked about going to war with the data you have, and we talked about how the original body of literature on AI was based on enterprise and cloud. And then like, you know, we're only just now beginning to realize that like DOD can't just go to war with data, with cloud and enterprise, you know, that's not how it works. But there's some, some policy around like data governance that is still based on this outdated literature around AI, AI like the enterprise. And so that's, that's a place where there's that policy gap. There's the general progress of technology. Like in 30 years, the department will kind of have noticed that and will change policy accordingly. But right now we're in a time that we're trying to accelerate change or lose or, you know, or Accelerate AI Innovation, that comes from the National Security Commission on an AI final report. The National Security Strategy just came out that said we're at an inflection point, a time of fierce competition with China and a really complex strategic environment around the world. This is a time where we have to accelerate. So we can't wait for that 30 years for policy to catch up with the literature. And to accelerate, you definitely need people who understand the technology 
in positions to allocate budgets and support decisions and define. So like the point is, you know, we need to make things that stick. You stick with budget. If things stick via budget, they stick via policy. And we definitely need people in place who understand not, and it's not just kind of any technologist. I mean, this is the hardest thing in the world. Technology for DOD, you know, it doesn't really get harder. So we need creative technologists who are open-minded, who are mission-focused, who are very flexible, who can be multidisciplinary. It's a super hard challenge, but definitely technologist or, yes, it's like in the background that we need represented more in those places. In the future that I see where we leverage artificial intelligence, advanced computing, digital engineering to realize like significant mission transformation, do things really, really differently. If you can do CICD, continuous integration, continuous development to weapon systems, like that doesn't mean that like you move from updating your weapon system every year to every two weeks, you know, agile style, or even like in response to something happen event-based or something, you know, it's not just that. Like that, yes. But what it really means is that a commander during a time of war can task their digital capabilities to do something in response to what is happening on the battlefield or what's happening operationally or, strate- or strategically, you know, it, just like they would task a human, you know, they have a whole digital force that would be available to them to be responsive exactly in real time to the evolving operational needs. And so to realize that we don't just need technologists who are in the policy shops driving policy, we need technologists to be the commanders. You know, there'll be an entirely different skill set that is part of what a combatant commander brings to the table. And it is also knowing how to command this digital force. And so they will, you know, they need, I mean, again, we were talking about really hard things. These people have crazy skills, but that technologist aspect of it will be a new core skill set that our most senior leaders have. Yeah, so I want to stress a point because I think it's, I think it's a large, important statement. In order to sort of achieve that that vision you have, which is to have commanders really task their digital force at the same way that they would task their people, you know, what, what you're really alluding to is that, or directly saying here, is that the technologists themselves need to be those commanders. Is that a trend that you that you think we are heading towards, or is that a gap? that you see getting wider? Oh, I don't, man, that's a good question. And like, I am a data-oriented person, so I'm quickly like cataloging through the data that I know. I don't know if it's a trend. It's certainly a gap. I remember when I was kind of tracking statistics of senior leaders in the Air Force in particular with very advanced technical degrees, the numbers were startlingly small. There are other ways to gain those skills. That's a metric that indicates that it's a gap. I don't really know if it's a trend, but it's something that I very much want to be a part of changing, which is why when you ask, and I did say about the technologist, because I knew we were going to be talking about AI on this podcast, I I don't really want to be a technologist, you know, I want to be a senior leader who is defining a budget and doing force design and thinking about how I'm going to execute my operational mission bringing AI and digital engineering and advanced manufacturing and traditional things to bear on the mission wholeheartedly. So yeah, so can't completely comment on the trend, but would say it's certainly a gap 
And like, aren't we trying to close it? You know? Yep. So what you're saying is, is you and people like yourself can and are those type of people both now and in the future. And, and hopefully enough people just continue to participate to, to close it. I, th I think that's amazing. One of the things I'd love to hear from you is you have a, a great track record to go from, you know, really vision of a, of a new capability that that's grounded in, you know, math plus data plus compute and take that initial vision and actually see it go through, you know, concept, ideation, you know, building initial capability and then ulti ultimately delivering it. Have you found that there's a pattern to that? Is there sort of a, a go-to approach that you've used in the past that you think is maybe repeatable? Yes. Yeah, there's a, there is a go-to approach. So the, the way that you approach solving a problem, define, like, you know, you're presented with a problem. First of all, it's a great skill set to figure out how to see your sort of solution, like a mass-shaped solution in a problem. That's certainly not always given to you. And that it's not every, you know, it's not everything. So you don't pick all problems. And you do, of course, try to really specifically in a very, you know, like this will reflect that I spend a lot of time with physicists, a very watertight way, you know, build a math solution to whatever problem that you're presented with. So, I mean, of course, you have to figure that out, like for real. And again, in that operational context, with those, those, realities being true constraints and requirements. So like, I mean, this is shaping like a, tech, a technology or development or research problem, which we get wrong all the time. So some of the reason why this doesn't happen is because we get this wrong. So like one example, and this is particularly true in AI right now, maybe forever, just as the literature goes, I'm not, not even quite sure what to expect, but solutions for AI problems where you're bundling data, math and compute, those solutions are very local to that bundle of data, math, and compute, and very local to the specific question or answer that you're trying to get from that solution. You know, so very, very, very local, which means if you relax a requirement or if you kind of like cop out of like, oh, it's going to be a data sparse problem, so I can't use machine learning. But like, let me move to a different data set where I can apply machine learning and like do my machine learning there and then like transfer it back. Like it will break every which way. And I, I have a heart for this background because those of us and many of us have either an engineering background or kind of just an intuition for breaking problems down into smaller toy problems and solving those smaller toy problems and building back up. But AI, it's either not mature enough right now or maybe we'll never understand the complexity to be able to break it down. So we're often when we simplify solving the wrong problem. Like I remember hearing from a project team that again had like moved to a proxy data set that was better suited to the model they wanted to use instead of changing their model to be suited to the real world data set. And they're like, oh, we found this feature in the data set. And it's like, but like that, you, if you can detect that feature, who knows if you can detect the real feature and the real, you know, it doesn't transfer. So that's kind of one thing. But all of this was really to say, I mean, if you are work really hard and and build yourself a watertight technology development or research plan that solves the real mission problem as it truly is. That's a whole skill set. Like, you know, Rob, and many of our money listening will know, you know, you have to do all that, really understand the user's problem, you know, really be committed to develop a solution that solves their problem and not just the solution you want to solve. You know, you have to get all of that right, which is hard. 
But then really, truly, your goal wasn't to develop a technology that worked or was that's a goal of it. Your goal is to get that technology transitioned into a mission that has an operational capability and already a whole set of business rules or mission, everything to do things a totally different way. And, and that's super hard. It also requires like that engagement with the end user, you know, but it also, I mean, you have to, you have to know the funding cycles. You have to know the implementation system. You have to know what are the, we say, like we say culture in this committee, but like, what are the skeletons in the closet? You know, there might be things like that organization knows that they're working with a dominated solution, but they really love it because it gets them the money they want in the right place. And, you know, there's all of this stuff to understand. And that's a different skill set than the skill set that it took to build the solution in the first place. So, of course, the answer is you have to be doing these at the same time. You have to anticipate for the end user that you're working with, what those barriers are going to be, what's it going to be like to need to transition to some, to, not some, these aren't just different skill sets, they're different funding sources, they're different, you know, you have to anticipate all of that. And then simultaneously, you know, we talked about have these big vision ideas, like this revolution of military affairs enabled by data and AI, but like you have to start at zero to one, you know, so you have to reverse engineer that to one and then do that right problem thing and support the transition. And the other thing I'll say is that it's super duper important that you're still imagining that revolution in military affairs that's at a hundred and then go back to one. Because if you just think of step five, you'll never get to a hundred. And I, so I can give a data example that, or like an actual example, that's not even a program that I did that confirms that this is true. So SpaceX is going to Mars, you know, and in going to Mars, they were trying to develop a, Rob, you know this stuff better than I do, but like a rocket fuel that would get them all the way to Mars. And there's a rocket fuel that gets us to the moon. And so first you start by like tweaking the rocket fuel that gets us to the moon, you know? Cause, and they're like, well, what if, what if I just want to go a little farther than the moon? What if I just want to go two steps farther than the moon? You know, you tweak in the rocket fuel that gets you to the moon. But knowing that they wanted to go all the way to Mars drove the development of an entirely new rocket fuel that gets to Mars. If we only aim for the moon, you only get the rocket fuel that gets you to the moon. It's a totally different technology approach and solution to go all the way to Mars. So you have to think of that huge idea or else we kind of won't push it far enough and we won't discover the right math and science to get us all the way there. But yet still you have to come all the way back to step one. So that's like a whole lot of things to do at once, but it's the formula. That's, that's the formula. It sounds rather complicated, which is, I think, exactly why you expressed and said that the hardest thing in the world is developing and deploying technology for the DoD. And so I wanted you to maybe spend a second describing what, what makes it so hard. Well, I'm going to give you an unexpected answer that I haven't heard anyone else say, so maybe it'll be a contribution. Another thing that makes it hard is that the DOD is executing all of these missions right now. And even though we have to be aware of China and the world is super complex and we still have these other threats around, you know, Iran, 
North Korea, you can tell I have like a nuke background with the threats that I name, you know, even still like we're pretty awesome. And the DOD is very powerful. So when we're talking about advances in mission capability, you're not starting at zero and getting to 10, you know, you're kind of eking out this enhanced performance against an existing baseline that's very strong. And that's in that space of, this isn't that my math, but I think we can all appreciate. You're in a space of diminishing marginal returns. Everything that is known has been done. We've gone to the moon, you know, like it's not always easy, but things that are doable with what the United States and humanity have right now have been done, you know, and we do them really well. So advancing capability, developing new technologies for the DOD are in that space of diminishing marginal returns, which, which where you have to squeak out enhancements, squeak out improvements over an existing very strong baseline. And also knowing that if, it, if it's easy, it would be done already. You know, if it were a single, if a single discipline or approach could solve that problem, that would already be in, implemented. If it looks anything like how we have thought to solve the problem before, we would have implemented and it would be solved. So, you know, we have all this data, not at failing, but data of using the techniques and approaches and policy and governance that we already do. It gets us to this point. And this point is a really powerful point, but we're talking about going farther. So anything that gets us farther, which will be really hard fought advances, again, because we have an existing baseline that's pretty strong, but anything that gets us farther will be something so entirely new. And you and Ho Rob, like, I mean, it's really, doing new is really hard because, I mean, that means the way you make decisions, the way you approach problems, you know, that's very, very hard to do. And multidisciplinary, which is very hard to do. So I, you know, I think a lot of people when they're talking about why technology development is hard for the DOD, they would reference the challenging operational environment. They would reference the acquisition environment, you know, services, competing, jointness, whatever, you know. But so I wanted to add to the conversation, those comments around, like, remember, we can do all these missions right now. We're talking about advancements over existing missions. And that's another element that makes it very hard. And you also have to remember that when being a technology developer, because you're not just solving your capability in a vacuum. You're solving your capability that competes with an existing very powerful system. And you have to start from outperforming that existing baseline. I thought that was a very powerful statement and definitely a very different take than a lot of the folks that have been on this podcast. You know, one of the comments you made was that diminishing return on, on value. You know, so many times it's the, the problem you're trying to solve that's extra important. How does somebody know when the problem they're working on has a diminishing return, you know, i.e. maybe I should avoid that versus a problem that's truly going to produce, you know, not necessarily new capability, but a greater ROI from a, you know, organization or, or country perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are a number of different ways to kind of perceive that. One way is we really have to be humble and reflective about the approaches that you're using. And especially if you're working in a space that the kind of you disciplinarily or like as a technology, we have been developing solutions in that space for a long time, like really leverage, you know, like 
say we've been doing something for 30 years, like trying to metadata all the data in the DOD, you know, or that's a nominal example. But, you know, there is data in the fact that after 20 years, we're not done. Every time we try and every year, every month is an experiment. And the experiment is telling you, you know, this is, this is not really going well. So I had the opportunity to run a large program at the Department of Energy. And I had some projects that were maybe a 10-ish million dollars a year, you know, and the opportunity to invest the government's money on that scale to experiment with a technique. I mean, that's like the equivalent of the, what the whole nation can invest in this. We have to fail faster. You know, it's kind of what I'm saying. Like, if we didn't make progress doing our very best work in a year or two, like, there's no more money to spend on that, even if it were possible. Clearly, you're in this space of diminishing marginal return. Like, perhaps not enough money in the world could crack this nut. So some of it is, you know, leveraging that, thinking about all of these as experiments and really looking at the results of them and reflecting on it. Now, there's another way. We're kind of, we're sciencey people. There's another way to approach this besides just experimentation, which is theory, you know, and methods. And that is where people who understand the science and the, the underlying system behavior and the way the technology interacts with that can also add a lot of value. So there are some things that I can look at and know based on my understanding about like how information moves in data or my experience kind of as a technologist, you know, doing research in this space, we have kind of an anticipatory understanding of this technique will not work because the technique is not well suited for the system behavior that is happening. And that's like a tool or, or weapon that we can wield in having an understanding of what the likely return on investment is going to be. Finally, I was going to say, you know, the holy grail of what we're looking for with something like AI or other advanced technologies is, you know, there's like a level of hardness it takes to make progress in a space or kind of in a domain or a problem set. And what we're looking for with game-changing advances is that you would like turn something that's hard into trivial, you know, you would compress the hardness it takes to solve a problem because the technology is game-changing or the math is game-changing and like orders of magnitude of hardness would just disappear. Kind of nuclear and energy is something like that. You know, we went from whatever coal, whatever, to having nuclear and it just, whew, that hard problem of energy compressed orders of magnitude. And AI isn't like that for a lot of applications, but sometimes I think people think that it's going to be a game-changing technology that will compress orders of magnitude of difficulty. And, and having the technical background to see those opportunities is something that someone, a technologist or somebody with that foundational background can give. And that's important when we as a nation or an organization is figuring out their investment strategy or how they're going to pursue different technologies to enhance their missions. If somebody is starting a new AI ML project, what are some of the top reasons that they're going to find that they're going to ultimately struggle or, you know, possibly even fail? Is there sort of a, a pattern in your experience on uh, the types of projects that, that are lined up to not succeed and, and maybe some way to sort of predict that outcome? Yeah, certainly. So if you're approaching AI, of course, like there'll be the data problem. Pick the right model. It might not even be like machine learning. Maybe it'll be some statsy thing or maybe even math, 
you know, so be open to changing the model that you approach, you use to approach the problem. But, but in terms of being like a contributing data science or AI technologist, of course, you have to do that stuff that, especially kind of in the data and software space, we always do in terms of understanding what your end user needs and, you know, really understanding how to like do all that, of course, but get your, get yourself as close as you can to a decision maker. Because AI is a decision support technology. It's a decision technology. I'm trying, I'm still like watching the literature to see if the word decision intelligence catches on, but like, while I'm also like trickling it into the literature to see if it catches on. But AI is a decision technology. Of course, you want to build a good model. And those are some tips to building a good model. And there are lots of blog posts on building a good model. Don't invest in governance at the the beginning, you know. But the point is that you want to, demonstrate that the output of your model will change the decision maker's decision calculus or the decision outcome. So you have to under, you know, you have to understand what that decision is going to be. You have to understand like, okay, so you get the data and so you run your algorithm on it and it pulls up some feature or makes a prediction. Like what's the decision maker going to do with that? That's really that, that whole decision modeling is what you need to do. Because especially, you know, AI for as much investment that it has in the DOD and as much buzz as it has in the public and academic literature, it's not connected to decision-making in many places. Like that's still a very rare thing because AI developers need to do this whole modeling thing and understand that they have to connect the output of their capability to all the way to how it will change what a decision-maker chooses. And also because one thing that we can predict based on theory, previous examples, is that new tech is cyclical. So AI is in an exciting cycle. I have a colleague who I follow that writes about, you know, are we coming out of the AI cycle? Is it dead? Is, you know, so we who do know AI beyond the hype and believe in the places, it's not ubiquitous, but the places where it can really add a lot of value, we have to do our part in developing, building those solutions that connect all the way to decision-making so that decision-makers will reallocate their budgets to invest in AI within their organizations so we don't go through the hype cycle of like, now we're in this AI winter and nothing ever gets funded. So because it's still immature and because it's still just in this hype cycle and or cycle and hasn't necessarily been institutionalized, every AI developer who has the opportunity needs to be promoting it to their decision maker. And you do that by connecting it all the way to their decision and demonstrating how the output of the AI will change how they approach resource allocation or what they pay attention to or find a bad guy or something. You have to connect to the value added of what your decision maker does. That definitely resonates with a lot of people who've been on the show who you know, really, really stress the importance of having a senior leader sort of back the work, you know, from as early a stage as possible. What other recommendations do you have for people who might be looking to deploy AI ML solutions on the local level and, and maybe struggling to find success, maybe struggling to actually get to the impact that they desire? You know, what, what recommendations do you have for those folks? The only measure of whether something is good or not is if it gets implemented and used. So if you can't figure out how to get somebody to use your software system or 
pay attention to the results coming out of your AI, you have like, you're getting the feedback that it's not right. And that could be in your approach to explaining it. It could be in the technology. It could be you're solving the wrong problem. It could be, you know, a number of different things, but that is that feedback. And that like, that's super hard to hear. And that's based on my experience of like, you know, taking something that seems really cool to somebody and them not wanting to use it. That's the only measure of whether it's the right thing. So if we can't figure out how to get senior decision makers or local decision makers to use the outputs of our capability, to go to our user interfaces, to let us put our data points in their briefing and make a decision out of it, then we don't deserve to be there. You know, um, like Ravs has a fantastic culture. I know Defense Unicorns has a fantastic culture. I came up through some really hostile cultures, hostile towards innovation and hostile towards math and computing. I was talking to somebody the other day who was young enough for in AI after DOD has said AI is cool. But like I was there before AI was cool. And I was there before we had the term data science and AI. And I'm trying to brief how a modeling and simulation capability will, I mean, and this is like textbook, like I learned it in my master's program, like this will help, but I can't get them to use it. So something about what I'm doing is wrong. You know, either I don't understand their problem correctly or I'm not connecting with them in the way, you know, we're not, spanning that divide and I learned those lessons and I'm still learning those lessons and every time I'm talking to somebody or showing somebody you know that it's dry running and getting that feedback about how to because if you really believe that you're not wrong you know okay cool then keep at it but you still have to get them to use it or else it doesn't matter even if you're right or wrong and then also being humble and open enough to take that feedback that like well okay, maybe I've tried this for a while and it's not, it's not working. So maybe it's not the thing that will ever work, you know? And that does take a diligence and paying a lot of attention and leveraging that feedback. But yeah, that, you know, if they don't use it, they don't use it. That may be my new favorite quote, which is, I was there before AI was cool. So <laughs> appreciate that, Jim. Man, people don't know it now because there's so much money in AI. Like, I remember, man, I remember being in, in big, auditoriums, you know, and you're breathing this powerful deep learning solution and someone's like, what's deep learning? That seems fake. People don't, people doing AI right now, or some of them were, I, you know, many of us went through that and it's easier now, you know, and, 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 and we're happy to have created the environment that it's much easier now, but man, those are, there were some really tough days and kind of even before that. So my background in, in OR, you know, we kind of walk in and we say, well, you know, like we know you're making a decision, but we swear we could help you make it better if you just let us do some math. That doesn't sell a single, you know, single project or capability. So learning in those environments where there was pushback, how to still advocate for your position. And even in, even in an environment that is really friendly towards AI and machine learning right now, you'll still have your, your local leader who has to make a resource allocation decision or you know, your AI presented something different than what their gut says, you have to overcome that friction to get them to use it. So now that we've transitioned to dark ages in terms of before AI was cool, what about the future excites you about uh, AI ML, especially in, you know, the secure infrastructure environments, Department of Energy, Department of Defense? Uh, I mean, so much. I think that if, and we're, you know, we're close, like the senior 
senior decision makers and even, you know, people kind of up the chain who are thinking of new warfighting concepts like Jantz, you know, Jantz 2 and the joint warfighting concept, you know, those are all right on. The vision that they present is what we should be going after. You know, re it's not, and it's not even just, it's not even just DOD and tech, you know, but reimagining international partnerships and alliances that are much more flexible and dynamic. There's a real current kind of across discipline you bring to national security and international affairs. There's this real current right now recognizing that we have an opportunity to switch from this really traditional hierarchical approach, whether that's kind of hierarchical in terms of like data and governance or hierarchical in terms of strategic operational tactic or hierarchical, you know, whatever it is, we have this we see it in, in, in the way that we're talking about resilient supply chains now, network, you know, this idea of shifting from linear top-down relationships to distributed networks, whatever that means for you in your, in your discipline. You know, those are all the right aim points. And also, like, we have the technology with data and AI and modeling and simulation, you know, all this stuff to achieve it. Like, that's the right aim point. Sometimes in the middle, you know, we're, we're not pushing it hard enough. We think like, oh, it's really, yeah. Oh man, all the different data formats. How do I overcome it? I don't know, but that's, that's the thing. Like figure out how to overcome it. Or there's going to be all these autonomous systems. And I don't mean like UAVs spinning around. I mean like autonomous software agents that are connecting and recombining data and, you know, mosaic warfare concepts where you have teensy things and then they aggregate to have strategic effects. You know, that's, it's a really exciting time in that a lot of communities from different disciplines are imagining this, these really different concepts of operations. And I, if we can just pull it together, it could be, it could be really so cool. So that's kind of the, in, the defense, in the defense space. I will also say that I think that the DOD invests in ways that shape our industry and certainly in strategic competition to whatever degree, like, you feel excited about strategic competition. Strategic competition is about facing in China and other authoritarian governments, states that inextricably combine their economy and their defense versus us, where we have this, you know, free liberal democracy and capitalism, you know, where industry can do what it wants. That said, DOD invests in a way that can shape industry. So if DOD invests the right way, you know, this will create the industry that we need to win in that competition over the next hundred years. And it's not just, you know, investing in what the DOD needs to execute its mission, but it's investing in future small businesses and future large businesses and the next version of the film industry. You know, that is all part of the engine that DOD's investments create. And that's, that's really exciting and important and super cool. And then because I'm like a scientist and spent all that time at DOE, I'll also say the one thing that excites me about artificial intelligence is the idea that, so right now, you know, think of when you were in chemistry in high school or middle school and you do these one-off experiments, you know, for the most part, experimentation is still like that. Again, whatever experimentation means to you in your life, it's still this one-off hand prescribed, you know, you think of what do I want to test? And I set up my experiment and then maybe you get your data and you just watch it. And then you by hand set up another experiment. AI, I think, I know if we get it right, would enable you to do all of that like digitally in a closed loop. 
And so you can instant in an adaptive way. You know, you get that data, you set up the next experiment, but all in code, all in math, all together. And so you go from doing one experiment at a time and interpreting the results to doing 100,000 experiments at a time and interpreting the results. And in that way, we as humans who are looking at data will have to interact with data in entirely, like think of the shapes that you'll see in that. Who knows what they, who knows what they are? But that's the future. And for not all applications, but for some applications that will present the opportunity to open up like new realms of science and new realms of the human experience. And there are some early examples of this. I won't go, we could, I could talk for like much longer about this and why it's hard and why it's easy and how to predict these returns on investment for this sort of capability. But for now, I'll say, so there are examples of this in material science, but there is a cool example in the space domain. There's a company called Advanced Space. I'll plug them. And they have, I mean, in terms of ROI, this is a good problem for this because everything is in physics and can be modeled because Rob, physics is kind of easy, you know, you know, I know. it's at least it's complicated versus complex, but anyway, so they were trying to send, I think it's called Capstone. They have a project with NASA, send this, you know, probe thingy out to cislunar space between the moon and the earth, way deep space for the way America approaches it now, deep space. And to do that, they had to chart a really efficient, oh, I wish, I wish I could remember all the things, but they had to chart this like mission that slingshots around a couple different things, Lagrangian points, all that stuff. Me and I am like exploiting everything I know about space right now. Slingshot around like six Lagrangian points, whatever. I and mean, that's a really, you can't, there may, maybe I'll even say, there's not an analytical solution. You kind of can't just model that, what that slingshot is. But they know they had to find that slingshot pattern. And they knew they had some constraints, like fuel and like how far they could be from each place. So instead of like building out one pattern at a time and checking if it matched, building out one pattern to check it, you know, they built a completely autonomous pipeline, automated pipeline, computational pipeline that could enumerate, like that could run with 60,000 of these, you know, times 60,000 of them until they find the right path. And that's the only way we can get this thing to cislate our space. So that's what I mean by like, you know, for some applications, this like two orders of magnitude L will literally enable us to access regimes of human experience that we've never gotten to for. So that's like a sign. You probably don't get too many like deep science answers on your podcast. And, and hopefully I can provide that a little bit also representing my background at DOE. Well, any shout outs to physics are always welcome, even if they're close in the eye. So appreciate those. Obviously, your passion and intellect radiate through everything you say. The, the last question that we always ask our, our guests on the show is really, why should people keep listening to this podcast? Oh, because you ask great questions. I would say I certainly, I, I have found it to be very interesting. And I think that you invite guests that have perspectives that are worth listening to. And I know are the sort of people that like, well, if I can end with a little bit of an anecdote, a couple of years ago, I realized like for a while, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm such a change agent. Like there must be like some nominal number of change agents in a national security enterprise, like hundred change agents, like, holy cow, we can really do things now because now there's 101 change agents, you know? And then I kind of like a couple of these later, you know, remembering my background in math and stats and stuff, I'm like, well, that's not possible. Like. How could I be like one out of however many billion people in the world suddenly add one more change agent? 
to the DOD for the first time in history or to the national security enterprise. And I realized, oh no, like I'm the hundredth change agent, you know, there's over, over only ever a hundred, you know, or whatever the number is. And that's like one, one of them, you know, and it just communicated to me the responsibility that we have as change agents and affirmed like when this is hard, like it's hard for everyone and everyone keeps going, you know, that's kind of the role and you may not do this role for your whole life or you may come into it later in your life, but it's just part of the role. So in that way, I'll say, you know, I know that I strove to give you, give you answers that would be really insightful to your listeners and add some differentiating value to their professional experience. So I know that your other guests are doing that. So in that way, I would say this is certainly a podcast worth listening to. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to, to be on the show. Absolute, absolute pleasure. You're certainly a thought leader in the space. You know, no doubt that you'll continue to, to grow and accomplish more great things for, you know, national security in, in general. And just appreciate uh, all of your thoughts and, and your time. And thank you so much for, for joining us on today's podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. Bye, everybody. Have a great day.